everyone, and welcome to the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. And I'm your co-host, Luke. How you going, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Very I almost good. stuffed up that intro then. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I We're still practicing. Say the word. I almost stuffed up the word Australian. <laughs> like the worst word to stuff up. Oh, I know. Imagine if I stuffed that up. It would have been, would have been pretty funny. <laughs> we would have had to put you on a boat and float you overseas somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kick me out. So, what's new, mate? Anything? Uh, signed the final paperwork to the house today. Beautiful. So that's all underway and I'm broke as hell now. So Yep. Broke as hell. Money's gone. Measure in the herb room. Yeah. Yep. I'm already to, playing Tetris in my head. Trying to work out what you can fit where and whatnot. Yeah. Yep. I'm, um, I'm stinging to get back up there because we can't go up there until the lockdown's over to measure up. At least yep. not before we. I mean, if they if they end up pushing this lockdown for another month, then I'll have the keys in my hand before I'm allowed to go up there anyway. So, yeah, right, yeah. But I'm keen to go and measure up these rooms and and whatnot. But um, yeah, planning to go and get some more Grid Connect gear this weekend. Hopefully, just preparing it all and doing it all right from the outset and having a bit of fun. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah, bet you can't wait. <laughs> yeah, own space. Oh, I'm stinging. Yeah, do whatever you want. So not long now. What are we? We're halfway through twenty days. Twenty days, and I'm it's mine. Yeah, okay, it'll, it'll go so quick. Yeah. Anyway, well, enough about us. Why don't we just jump straight in and introduce the guest? Day eh? should be a good one That's tonight. Good. So tonight we've got on Jake Manny. How you going, mate? I'm good, guys. How are you? Good, good. I pronounced your name right, didn't I? You did. You did. Excellent. Good. I thought I, I said I'm like, <laughs> did I say it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> We don't have to do, do over two minutes in. Oh, mate, would have been yeah, we're like, oh, that's it, that's me for the night. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, anyway, anyway. All right. Well, so basically, for anyone that doesn't know Jake, he, I'm sure you've probably either a seen him at the reptile park or two just seen this awesome trip that he's just been on, and saw how many green tree pythons was it with Matt in on your trip? Thirteen uh, yeah. was it? Matt and Christy, yeah, between the three of us, over four nights, we uh, had 14 green pythons, so it was pretty productive. We were up there for five nights total, um, and yeah, only had one night where we didn't see any, and that was just the night that we had torrential rain, so we just kind of left the green pythons that night and went after some frogs, but um, yeah, we saw, saw our fair share. Man, I saw those pictures and I was like, oh, oh that's just, I'd just be stoked to see one. And you saw a juvenile too. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was good enough just seeing, you know, we'd seen already, I think we saw five or six adults before that juvenile. And like, I was happy with one on that first night, but to see that little, um, that little yellow neonate was pretty spectacular. Who spotted it? Was it you or was it Matt or? Uh, so we were, um, we were actually just, we met up with some other herpers up there. There was actually, um, three groups of us up there. Yeah. Um, these other two guys called Jack and Nico and, uh, Nico was actually the one that, that spotted it. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, um, it was a pretty good spot. It was just off the, um, just off the road, just hanging in ambush, um, in like a little patch of, was it, there was a big bamboo thicket right where it was and then it was just out on the outskirts hanging on a little wow. um, on a little almost weed type thing um, but yeah most of the most of the snakes we saw were just sitting in ambush on the side of the road or um, we'd go back during the day and find the the same ones that we saw the night before sitting up 
perched in their um in their roosting spots a few meters high so yeah we saw 14 individuals but we saw a few of those multiple times throughout the the week or so we're up there yeah that's unreal that is unreal we might um circle back to that herp trip i think and knock out a few questions before and then we can just oh, for sure. go on with that because there's so many to talk about that one yeah. so anyway what um what got you into reptiles um, I guess probably not too dissimilar to most people that will be listening to this. Um, I started really young. I don't exactly know what what ticked it off. Um, my parents, neither of those, them were into uh, into reptiles, so I just kind of found it at probably three, four years old, and um, yeah, just started kind of reading, getting you know books where I could, and um, it just kind of snowballed into this full blown obsession that I'm still you know very much involved with. Uh, all these years later. Um, so I got my first reptile when I was seven, which was just a big old male Eastern blue tongue. And I had him for yep. 15 plus years. He was already a big adult by the time I got him. Um, I don't know how old he was at that stage, but yeah, he lived, lived a long time and um, he fathered a few few litters for me. He was a good, good boy and um, it just kind of went from there. So through my teenage years, I kept, you know, on and off throughout mostly lizards, um, you know, a few species of gecko, a few dragons. Um, but I guess for me, my main interest has always been in the ecology and, and the, um, you know, the wild side of things, I guess. Um, that yeah. was most of what I dedicated my time to. Lots of reading about herps, um, as I said, their ecology, their natural history. And then by the time I was, you know, 15, 16 and, and could drive myself around. That's when the herping side of things um, kicked off for me. And yeah, it's still still very much a big part of my life. Yeah, so I found I, I'm finding I'm getting more into that side of things the older I get. So mm. I kept, and then obviously moved everything on. But like we were talking before, before Luke jumped on, I just I, like I see all these pictures of all these herp trips, and it makes me just want to go out and see stuff in the wild rather than keep a lot of stuff. Yeah. compared to when I used to keep stuff. So, yeah. And I certainly think there's there's place for both. I mean, I love keeping reptiles as well. I love breeding yeah. things. It's, um, yep. you know, it's, it's a really exciting thing. And the good thing about keeping herps in captivity is you get to see them do a lot of weird and wonderful things that you would never get to see in their wild counterparts because you're not looking at them, you know, as you can you know you've got a dragon sitting in your lounge room you can watch its behavior all day long you can't really do that with some of these wild species so uh, yeah there's certainly place for both but um yeah i think most people kind of lean strongly toward toward one or the other and they're both very time consuming things so it's hard to uh hard to find time to do both really really well exactly exactly are you still keeping much now or uh, all I have at home currently is um, just a young pair of rough scale pythons. Um, yeah. Obviously, they're a, they're an amazing snake. They're my favourite Australian python. Always have been. So, um, yeah, I've had them for a couple of years now. I just got them as as tiny hatchlings off off one of my mates. But um, yeah, that's it for the moment. I mean, I do do reptiles all day, every day. Um, so when I come home, it's kind of my time to to kick back in saying that I'm still, you know, doing reptiles on my phone or reading a book, but yeah, uh, yeah, I've got a, a minimal collection currently that might change a bit as I get older. Yeah. 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 
Are you gonna, you're you're also gonna ask for something, Luke. I was just watching you. I was just gonna say that, yeah, it seems like it's it, it is one of those things that that does kind of come later in life to a few people. Like I myself, I kept for a number of years before I even knew herping was a thing, really. Um, and you know, kind of got in with a few groups of people that actually went out on a regular basis. And yeah, after so after talking to Matt about a few of his trips and stuff, I know Jason and I have been talking back and forth on potentially trying to organise a trip and either go up his way or you know get out of get out of New South Wales at least hopefully so yeah I mean that's that's all you have to do is just get out there a lot of people you know I get a lot of messages about how do you find such and such how do you see so many things but it's really just you know spending some money getting on the ground and getting yourself to a place where these species are and just putting in the time and and having a bit of luck on your side you can't really you can't really find these things just sitting at home you have to be out there you have exactly. to put yourself where they are as much as i love my wife you know i'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd like to go on a herping trip without her no offense to her uh but yeah it's a little hard to bring somebody along that's not so keen on it yeah so i think yeah. you know it'd be a little bit different imagine. if if, uh, if uh, jason and i was able to escape our partners and uh, and whatnot <laughs> it might be a little bit of a different story and you know we could we could then kind of vibe off each other as well like i always find that whenever you do go out herping with with hurt mates or whatever you know it's the excitement of the chase and you know oh, i hope we find this tonight you know hopefully yeah. we will check out some new territory or something like that but yeah there yeah, comes I'm really a, looking forward to it you know there, there comes a point i mean herping on your your own is okay and i've done plenty of that as well especially when i was younger and and didn't know you know quite as many people as i do now but there's nothing better than finding that target species and having two or three people around you to, you know, slap their back. To witness and, it. Yeah, it's it's a good, you know, bonding, exciting moment. And I've had, you know, I've been lucky to have quite a few of those. Yeah, because you've seen some amazing stuff. Just like I was flicking through your Instagram probably just before we jumped on just to, and I was like, man, some of the stuff you've seen yeah, it's um, unreal. Yeah, it's been, you know, quite a busy few years really. I guess probably 2014 or early 2015 was when I – really kind of started taking it a bit a bit serious i'd always herped you know locally around the house um i used to live in in penrith which is of course at the base of the blue mountains so that in itself is is an amazing place and there's a good variety of species up there Um, but yeah i started doing these bigger interstate trips probably six seven years ago now and um, yeah yeah as we said before you just got to get out there and and put yourself where these animals are um, and of course, you know, it's, um, it's not easy sometimes and it's not always snake, 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 constant success. It's, um, you know, it's a lot of hard work and it can be, can be pretty brutal. Some of these places like last yeah. November, I did a Tanami trip um, and, you know, the Tanami is in, I guess, the more to the west, but central Northern Territory um, up towards the WA border almost. And, um, yeah, like 46, 47 degree days. There's not a scrap of shade anywhere. Where we were camped, the only way we could get a bit of reprieve was hanging a tarp between the two vehicles, sitting under it, and you're just drinking boiling hot water because there's, you know, there's nothing out there. It's just, um, yeah, it was pretty pretty intense. But, yeah, still still saw some cool herbs. That's amazing. That's unreal. Oh, I've definitely felt a little bit of that desert heat, like going out to around Alice Springs and stuff like that. I didn't experience 46. I think the hottest I got was about 41 out there, but oh. 
Yeah, that was, we, that was enough for me. Yeah, and you once just, you get um, over that thirty-five, every degree feels like ten degrees. I reckon. Yeah, and the yeah. thing with that, the thing with that, you know, Central Australia part of the country is especially around Alice. There's you know heaps of those rocky gorges, and they just retain the heat so well. Like you can have yeah. a even just you know a day in the low thirties, and you're walking around those gorges at night, and it is so hot because all your all the heat's just reflecting off those those rock walls, and it's the same in the top end, and it's the same in the Kimberley as well. Wherever yeah. you have those those big rock escarpments, they just yeah hang on to the heat well into the night, and they're yeah. not uh, not pleasant places to walk around if you're not seeing too much. <laughs> yeah, I didn't didn't get to see as much as what I hoped for when I was out there, but. Uh... Yeah, definitely didn't get my Gillen's monitors. I'm still on the hunt for those, and Matt's been teasing me with photos of those. So, <laughs> yeah, it's um, that's okay. Yeah, I've done four trips now to to Alice, um, so I've seen most of what's out there. Fortunately, the first year, the first time I ever went out there, um, it was a really wet part of the year. We had a lot of rain most afternoons, and we just cleaned up, especially on snakes. You know, yeah. sometimes 30, 40 snakes a night. Really productive. Wow. But, um, yeah, the one snake I still need out there is a bread lie. Um, yeah. So, I'll, I'll still have to keep going back because, yeah, that's the, the one thing that's um, that's still hanging on out there for me. See, I like that idea of having like a list of things to see when you go because that's something that just make me want to keep going and going and going. Like, yep. obviously, because yeah. I collect books and everything else. So, it's like you have these things. You want. I've already got things I want to tick off and photograph. But I'm sure every time I go somewhere, the list will just get longer and longer and longer and longer. So yeah. I'm, I'm super keen to get out. Yeah, it, it is like that. Yeah. yeah. It's how it works. You you go somewhere with a target species in mind and then, you know, you might find that early and now you've got to occupy your time with something else. So, yeah, you, you typically have one main target and then lots of, lots of bycatch or you can have a few really, you know, solid targets for a trip. And I mean, the great thing about this country is it doesn't really matter where you go. There's always going to be at least you know a handful of species that are that are there waiting to um to keep you busy. Yeah. So when <clears throat> when you left school, did you study anything herb related, or did you like um, volunteer at the park, or did you kind of just luckily jag a job there? Like, yeah, I went um I went to uni uh, straight out of school. And yeah. um, I started a, a zoology degree. Um, I wasn't really too sure at that point the um, the track that I wanted to head down, whether it was, you know, wildlife surveys or yeah. conservation management or, you know, the, the captive side of things, the zoo field. But I knew, I, of course, I wanted to work with, with reptiles or wildlife more broadly in some respect. So, um, yeah, I went to uni and I did just a year of that. Um, decided it wasn't for me and, and decided that I really wanted to head down this um, zoo field path. So I went and did a um, certificate three in captive animals. And then from there, whilst I was doing that that TAFE degree, I was volunteering at the, the reptile park um, yep. two a week. And then, yeah, just got, got really lucky. Um, nine, ten months into my volunteer stint, I guess, um, a job came up and because I'd already had a fair bit of experience keeping um, at home, you know, for all these years, I just kind of fell into the role fortunately and, and yeah, haven't looked back since. That's unreal. 
Yeah. I'm sure that's every young kid's dream to work at the reptile park or you know, <laughs> if you're in a different state, it might be a different different animal park. But, yeah. yeah, I remember growing up, I always wanted to wanted to work there, but I just never volunteered because I jumped straight into a trade. So, um, but, yeah. yeah it's, it's one of those things, I mean, um, zookeeping on social media or – It looks good. You know, it looks <laughs> – and, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's an amazing – amazing industry but it's a lot yeah. of hard work and it's incredibly competitive um, there's yeah. a lot of people that want to do it but there's also a lot of people that aren't aren't willing to put in the hard yards you know, that's there's, right there's often days where we're working 11 12 hour hour days and some of those you may not even touch a touch a reptile um, yeah the higher you get in the in the chain you know the less and less animals you see and the more paperwork you see so yeah um, but you know it's, it's I know one that of those feeling. things I, I wouldn't give it up for anything um it's really rewarding um particularly when you get to work with you know a few of the species that i do um yeah it's, it's great yeah i'm starting to notice that sort of change in my my work role as well getting up into management or whatever i'm not cleaning so much lizard shit anymore which is you know it's a <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse because i joined the job to play with the animals essentially and and do what I, I do like doing but uh yeah at the same time it's kind of nice not to have to do so much of that yeah 100 percent. i think most jobs are like that i think i'm the same i was on the tools and now i'm not on them as much as i'd like to be it's all Work you dealing well. with builders and everyone else and yeah but yeah, you've got some amazing stuff at that park too. Like, you know, all the exotic stuff and the Komodo dragons and yeah, I love that a... um, alligator snapper. Yeah. Oh yeah, that thing's unreal. It's huge. We've, um, yeah, we've got a good a good exotic collection, and of course, um, you know, as as most people are, they're familiar with the fact that you can't keep exotics privately in Australia. Um, we yeah. don't know that. So yeah, to be able to work with some of those species that I would have never been able to otherwise, it's is pretty special. Um, probably my, or I guess to pick a favorite exotic snake and a favorite exotic lizard, it would hands down be, uh, King Cobras and, uh, Komodos. They're just my absolute favorite, those big lizards. What are the Cobras like to work with? Um, you know, they're, they're, they're a challenge. Um, yeah. you know, they're very different to, to anything that we have. Um, obviously I've worked with, with pretty much any Australian venomous that you can think of we've got a big native venomous collection at the park and then of course i've, I've found a lot of elapids in the wild um yeah those king cobras of course they get big um we had a had a male at the park up until recently that was about the 3.8 meter mark um, <laughs> which is a, it's a huge snake oh, yeah. um and they're not they're not slender either a big male king like that is thicker than your arm um, and heavy. Is that the one on display? Yeah, 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 that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's huge, um, that one. And, yeah, they are arboreal as well. They climb a tree just as good as any snake and, yeah, they can wrap around a hook or wrap around your arm. And because they are such a long snake, um, when you tail a, tail a king cobra, you've got a lot of their body out the other side of your hand, if that makes sense. Um, mm, yeah. You know, with a lot of Australian snakes, you can hang on to them around the, the cloaca or maybe just a bit a bit further down the body. But with them, sometimes on those big boys, you've got three, four foot of tail out the back of your hand and then the rest of him in front. And uh, <laughs> that's a lot of, lot of tail to wrap around something or get hooked in something. So we try not to, to handle them too much. One, they stress out. You know, you always see 
cobra's hooding with their mouth open and it looks really impressive but if a snake's doing that it, it, it's stressed you know we don't we yeah. don't like them to do that so we try and just be very gentle very um you know hands off or as much as we possibly can with them um and of course you know it's a it's a risk thing as well if they bite you that's right um you know we've got got anti-venom at the park of course but um you know i've seen them bite things and and they love to hang on and they love to pump a lot of venom into things so i would not want to take a bite from a from a king that's for sure definitely not yeah no what, i love what, going up there and checking them out what, what sort of toxins do they actually have in their venom um they've got a really uh, i guess complex venom like most elapids they have uh, neurotoxins um they are in their own their own genus so ophiophagus so they're not um, they're not in the same genus as other cobras like monocle cobras and, and spectacle cobras, but they do have reasonably similar venom. Um, king yep. cobra venom also has a lot of uh, properties that affect the blood and will affect the tissue as well. In fact, a lot of cobras do. Uh, the monocle cobra, you know, I've seen bites from those that are, are very necrotic and, and resemble you know, some viper bites that you see. Uh, they can can do a lot of damage to the flesh, and and king cobras will do the same. So, it's a very toxic, um, you know, pretty nasty mix of of things. And they do have an extremely large venom yield. We don't milk yeah. them, of course, on on a regular basis like we do our Australian elapids. The reptile park milks uh, five main species for the production of Australian anti venoms. We don't milk the king cobras, but we have on occasion for you know media, or um, we've even supplied venom uh, to some to some laboratories. But uh, when you milk them, and it's on on the rare occasion, but we do milk them, you get a lot of venom from them. Scary I can't really imagine. Yeah. The size of the head is honestly like the size of your hand. Yeah, they're like a they're, they're essentially a a venomous Burmese python. Like we've yeah. got we've got a few berms at the park quite a few um all within a similar size range between three and four meters and they they're pretty on par in terms of weight and and girth and and strength that's amazing scary snakes yeah that's one i do really need to see in the wild they're probably my my biggest bucket list herp at the moment yep so have you done any overseas herping at all or uh, I've done a little bit, um, mostly in Asia. Yeah. Um, a lot of it when I was younger, so didn't do as well as I probably would if I were to head over now. Wasn't quite as experienced, um, but saw a few few things. It was pretty. Um, it was pretty good to just kind of uh, dip the toes into into the Asian uh, side of of herping, and it's very different over there. Um, I'll tell you a quick story from uh, Langkawi Island, which is in Malaysia. Um, we went out there and uh, actually paid one of the locals to take us out on a boat to look for these uh, mangrove pit vipers, uh, Papyrus maculatus is their um, is their species name. A very large, very dangerous uh, viper that lives pretty much right on on the water in the mangroves. And um, anyway, we went out and he took us out and we found a few um, and we found this really large female right next to the water that I wanted to get some photos of. Um, so he just kind of landed the boat up on the mud and and <laughs> he kicked back at the back of the boat 
lit a cigarette, then went to sleep, and we just got out and and we were able to get our photos. It was a pretty um, it was a pretty weird experience. Certainly not something <laughs> you'd ever see happen yeah. in Australia. They're pretty no, um, definitely not. They're pretty loose over there, but um, yeah, that was an awesome snake, and we saw a few of those. Um, but I guess in more recent times, probably the the main bit of herping I've done overseas was in 2019. Of course, the last time I got overseas before uh, COVID struck, um, and that was a trip with my now wife uh, over to the States, and we spent a week in Arizona um, just looking for rattlesnakes. It was a good time. That wasn't yeah. your honeymoon, was it? <laughs> no, we actually um, we actually got engaged on that trip, so the honeymoon ah, okay. came a little later, but um, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's a good sport. She um, is she into reptiles as well, or oh, I would I wouldn't say that. She um, yep. she tags along and she's happy enough to to join me, especially when we're doing something exciting like looking for for healer monsters. She was pretty happy when we found um, one That's of those right. crossing she's the roads. That um, yeah, she she's not someone that that you know would go out and do it on her own kind of thing. She um, she just yeah. kind of tags along. Yeah, it's always good when your partner can kind of get behind what you're doing, though. You know, yeah. even if it's just a little bit like that. Like my wife was stoked finding some blue tongues in the Northern Territory with me and, you know, she put up sitting in the car while I was racing around the trees looking for Gillen's monitors and stuff. Like she was she was such a good sport like that. It's good to yeah. have supportive partners. Yeah, she's yeah, surprisingly definitely. she's surprisingly good at finding things too. She um <laughs> even better. I remember the first the first time we ever went herping together. Um this was probably like six months after we we'd got together. We went to Black Mountain in uh, North Queensland, just near Cooktown there, and there's a few endemic species there that I wanted to see. And um, there's two geckos that are pretty common there: the endemic Black Mountain gecko, which is a pretty tiny little thing, Naptus, and then you get the big um, coastal ringtails there as well. And she was They're a gun. Those ringtails, they are, they are. Yeah, she was a real gun at, at eye shining. She picked it up like quicker than anyone I've ever seen. So she was helping me spot and catch. <laughs> Nactus and yeah, she was she was pretty good. That's awesome. That is Man. fantastic. Yeah, my wife cool would have there. been like that when we were younger, but yeah, <laughs> I'd love to get up there and see them. Um, did you get up there on your last trip? Yeah, so, we um, yeah. yeah we had a bit of video bit of time at the end of at the end of the Iron Range part of the trip. So um, yep. we were actually meant to get in and look for um, an Ajura Ajura Jawal Bina. Um, that has a little range just near Laura there up in the, yep. in the sandstone, sandstone escarpment. And um, we were flooded flooded out of there. We got part of the way in and then the road just turned to to slop. So we we had a night to kill, um, didn't get the, the Ajura, but we just went to Black Mountain and, and killed a bit of time there. The last time I went up there, we didn't get the frog. So, uh, yeah, Matt came, came through with the goods this time and, and found one. Plus, we got all the the geckos and that. Now, I didn't even know those Black Mountain. Is it Black Mountain gecko? That's that's what they're called, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know they existed. Yeah, they're um, you know, they're kind of a little obscure thing. If you don't kind of go there and haven't looked in the in the field guide specifically for them, they'd be an easy one to miss. But they are a beautiful little gecko. Very yeah, fast. They blend in. Yeah, yeah. They're they're perfectly adapted for living on those rocks that rock is is really dark and then it has all this white fleckling uh, fle- <laughs> sorry <laughs> you're right <laughs> flecking through it if i can talk 
and um, the geckos have the the same thing. So um, no, you're right. You go. Luke. You go. You go, mate. Oh no, I was just going to keep talking about his like what he does when he gets ready. So when you go on herping trips, are you flying to the different states, or are you basically jumping in a car and driving? Um, it all depends on the trip and where we're kind of headed. Um, yeah. A lot of the trips I've done have been in the car, my own car. Um, I'll just leave from here and drive sometimes ridiculous distances in a day to get to, to wherever I want to be. Like last November, um, actually on the way to that Tanami trip, I was with a mate and he wanted to look for inland taipans on the way. And so we just pushed it and, and left Sydney one morning and the next morning we were in Coobapedi looking for, for inland tyres. So, um, yeah. That's a big <laughs> trip. That's a massive drive. Yeah, you do some ridiculous things on these on these trips. Um, I've done like 16, 1800 Ks in a day before. So, um, yeah, it all depends on, on what we kind of want to see. Um, a lot of the Central Australian trips I've done, I've driven. Yep done that drive through south australia a couple of times now um i've done some western queensland trips where i've left from sydney and driven up there but the wa trips i've done and the, all the north queensland trips i've done i've flown there yeah because that's a that's a fair drive in itself all the way over to wa so oh yeah like you know you'd you'd take two or three weeks off to do the trip and you'd spend two weeks of that driving there and driving back so it's just the most of time most time efficient way of of doing it to fly somewhere and yeah. hire a car yeah yeah I, I suppose it would be a little bit more like if you think about it in the long term too like it's kind of weighing up your pros and cons whether it's worth the fuel and the wear and tear on your car to drive that distance or it is you know like it's going to cost you a few hundred bucks to hire a car when you're there but yeah, yeah it d- all depends d- do you know if WA have kind of like limits on how many Ks you can drive their hire cars and stuff as well? Yeah, it depends. It depends who you go through and what, what car you get. Um, we had to search pretty hard for a car um, that had unlimited Ks and it was fairly expensive. Um, I know a lot of the a lot of places do have those, um, yeah, kilometer limits on them and they charge you something like 30 cents for every K you go over. So yeah. they can they can sting you pretty hard if you um you know if you're not careful. So yeah, I always just try and if I am hiring a car, get something that that either has really decent kilometers or just unlimited is is easiest. Like on that WA trip, I think we ended up doing I don't know, probably over 10,000 easy um Ks, so <sighs> that's heaps. <laughs> Wow. How long were you over there for? Uh, I was over there for two and a half weeks. I went with Matt and um, another one of our mates, Greeny, Mark Green. Um, he just lives up in up in Taree. Um, yep. You've probably seen his name around. He breeds breeds quite a few things as well. Yep. Um, so, yeah, the three of us um, yeah, all flew over and met at Perth Airport and then uh, took off for two and a half weeks of herping and we covered That's a lot of distance. We drove all the way up the coast up to Exmouth, then out to the Pilbara, all around the Pilbara, then back down all through the Midwest, pretty much down to the as far south as you can go in the state, down yeah. you know, near Margaret River and that, and then um, and then came back up up to Perth from there. Did you guys find any Pilbara um, rock monitors while you were out that way? Yeah, we did. We found um, we found one um, that was uh, near Panawanica actually, and then. Um, 
And then we spent a fair bit of time in Karajini, I think two or three days, um, looking for Hammersleyensis as well. But yep. uh, no luck on those, unfortunately. But we did get some cool things there. Um, I got my first uh, pygmy python, as did Mark. And um, there was one night where the two boys went down into a gorge. I was up at the top of the gorge photographing um, an underwater saurus, the, um, the Pilbara. The Pilbara, Pilbara species one. you get over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and while those boys were down there, they got like 30 or 40 snakes <laughs> just on foot. All wow. skimmies, pygmy, um, heaps of mulgas out there as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it can be pretty productive over there. Are, are the mulgas still pretty small down that way or, or do they kind of get to a decent size there as well compared to like the Darwin individuals? No, they're, they're quite small there. Um, yeah. The biggest one we saw and probably the biggest I've ever seen anyone find there was about four or five foot. Most of the ones we were seeing were between like two and three foot, so these little tiny mm. things. But, yeah, um, yeah those those top-end mulgas up around Darwin and, and down into Kakadu and that, they by far get the, the biggest. We've got a few of those. At the park, that's the locality we like to keep and breed for the the venom program because they obviously supply an enormous amount of venom when you you're extracting from them. Um, and yeah, we've got one now that's two point four meters um, and just solid oh, eyes. Yeah. And I have seen one a little bit bigger than that again. So they get to be a huge snake, but just not in the Pilbara. Yeah, I only came across one live mulga down near Yulara and that was um oh, I would have been pushing four foot maybe not yeah, a good, they, um, good solid three yeah I've seen some pretty solid ones up in Alice up out in the West Max um I got on the first trip out there that was probably almost six foot um yeah and pretty solid and they're quite nice up there as well of course um but yeah most of the ones you see out there and especially down around Yulara and that uh, don't get very big at all. Yeah, oh, that's cool. I, the Western Western Australia is definitely like top of my list as far as a destination that I really want to go. Oh, it's so such a big place and just so many endemic species, so many unique species over there. Um, it's a place that I've hardly scratched the surface of. So yeah, really need to get back there and and hit other parts of it really hard. I think it's one of those things too that like, I mean, where we kind of live, it's pretty, well, it's very different kind of habitat. So, being able to go to places like this that are just so far out of your normal kind of herping habitat, it's just yeah. so nice and refreshing. Like, I really get a kick out of that arid country and just seeing all those rock escarpments and stuff. And Yeah, that's, my, that's, my, favorite, that's my favorite habitat to herp, I reckon. Just dunes with spin effects or sand plane with spin effects. Um, you know, of course, Australia's lizard diversity is is insanely Massive. high, especially our skinks, and I think um, I think you know our spin effects has a lot to do with that. Yeah. So many species are so reliant on it. It's so crazy, like walking around those dunes in the morning after you know everything's been out overnight or whatever, and there's just tracks everywhere from all yeah. sorts of different little critters and little marsupials and things like you know and by the end of the day they've all blown away and then the next morning they're all there again so yeah it's pretty insane yeah it's good fun yeah i can't wait to see that stuff 
Got to get up and do it, mate. I know, I know. Central Australia is amazing. I wanted to do that drive. I wanted to do the drive like through Burke, down through um, Broken Hill and out through SA and up through Cooper PD. I really was keen to do that, but just time wasn't going to allow it. So we just decided we'd just hire a car and Yeah, it's a good good drive. You go through some, some pretty cool habitat. Doing that as well. Um, I always are you do. herping along the way as well, or yeah. are you just kind of like, yeah, yeah, no, there's a few good things along the way on that drive. Um, I always go out through like Cobar, Broken Hill, Port Augusta, and then up from there. Um, yep. and just north of Port Augusta, um, you drive straight past the um, the Neferis Delino spot. Mm. Um, oh, wow, yeah, the Panati Knobtails. So uh, that was a that was one, especially on the first trip I did through there that I really wanted to see, and I've seen them every time I've been through since. It just usually works out the way the way that I do it that I'm always kind of passing through there, either on dark or or you know late at night. So it um yeah it works it's perfect well. Timing. It's a nice habitat there. It's probably the nicest, more easily the nicest Western blue tongue I've ever seen was from that that spot as well. Really yeah, they're nice. beautiful, those Western Blueys. Yeah, especially those. I mean, you saw a few. Luke up around Yulara. Yeah. They're, um, they're insane up there. I've never seen them there, but those those, those red sand, um, I see Patalis just seem to be so vibrant and so starkly banded. I almost thought it was like a pile of bones on the road or something. Like that. It was just so such white. a nice white. Yeah. yeah. So crisp and clean. Yeah, that's stunning. Um, are you just swagging it when you do it or? Yeah, most of the time. Um, yeah. It depends on the length of the trip and where we are as well. Um, so there's been a few trips where I've stayed like in a cabin or, you know, we might do three or four nights in a swag and then we get sick of it and need a shower and we'll get a night at a caravan park or whatever. But, yeah, yeah for the most part, like I've done, I've done two-week trips where, it's been a swag and, and no showers the entire time. So it, it just depends on, on the trip um, yeah, and where we are. That doesn't bother me. <laughs> nah, if you're with the boys and, and everyone's smelling the same, there's no one to stink out someone else. You're all in the You same. don't know if it's you or the person next to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you don't say anything. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, well, I wouldn't mind getting stuck into this latest trip you just did. So Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this trip um, has been a long time coming, actually. Myself and Matt were meant to uh, do Vietnam, actually, last year. We were going to fly over there to northern Vietnam and meet up with a couple of guys from the UK that we know um, and then, yeah, hurt northern Vietnam and, and do vipers and crates and cobras. And, of course, we were we were insanely excited for that and it was all but yeah all but sorted we um we had flights booked and um accommodation sorted and everything was looking good and then literally probably three four weeks before we were meant to fly out is when uh covid kind of kicked off i guess especially in australia um so that trip was was very promptly cancelled unfortunately and then um and then we instead decided we might do a cape york trip um last year i wanted to go up last winter and and do the trip we just did Um, but with the the border closures and whatnot it just didn't happen so yeah finally this year we got up there and and made it happen so yeah it was good really good i've known did um, you drive up that one or fly up i flew up and um and met 
mad at Man the airport. And then we actually took yeah. Christy's Christy's car up there. She's got a troop carrier, so yeah, that's um, unreal. That thing it was a nice, capable vehicle to to get us where we needed to to go. Although the roads really were were nothing compared to to some roads I've been on around the country. We um we got up there, no worries at all. There was no no sketchy parts or anything. It was was smooth sailing all the way through. So yeah, um, but I've known Matt and Christy uh, for for a fair while now. I've known Matt a lot longer. Um, yeah, probably I don't know six seven years now. We've done quite a few trips together, and then um, yeah, just kind of met met Christy through um, Matt and through the the industry. Obviously, the zoo industry mm. in Australia is pretty pretty small, and um, both Matt and Christy are up at up at Hartley's there. So yeah. yeah. We know each other and and organized this trip and yeah we went up drove to iron range in a day um left cairns reasonably early and of course i mean i was after greens both those guys have been there uh multiple times before so um you know matt and christy both kind of had other things they wanted to see but um yeah we certainly saw saw a lot of greens we saw two on the drive-in and then um yeah and then just a bunch of others over the coming nights plus a bunch of other really cool things was that the first time you'd seen greens uh, on that trip say that again sir i think we just lost you for a sec there you just froze you there oh, you i got, got you now yep yep yeah, I think you yeah, just might have lost a bit of reception. Breaking there, anyway. up a little bit. Yeah, you got me. Cool. Yep. Might have. If you if you drop off, just jump back on. Yeah, oh, he's oh, having a little bit of little bit of Wi-Fi issues on his end there, according to the screen. That's all right. Hey, you got me. Can you still hear us? Yep. Got yep. you. Cool. Just as we're starting and juicy stuff, it went went all funny. So, <laughs> uh, oh, what was the what was the <laughs> juicy stuff? Oh no, just green tree pythons. I'm obsessed with them. But um, was that the first time you'd oh, seen them? Incredible in the wild. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of the you know the the aim of the trip was to see them. I mean, I could have gone up there years ago, but it's just kind of taken this long to to get up there. And I mean, it's not. You know, it's not a super easy place to to get to on your own kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, you would have to fly to Cairns and, and hire a car. So I was very fortunate and very, very grateful to, to Christy that we were able to use her car and, and get up there. Yep. Um, but, yeah, that was the first time I'd, I'd seen them. And um, as I said, we got one driving in within probably 15 minutes of entering the National Park. <sighs> And then another one very quickly followed that one. Um, and then the next night, I think we saw like five or six. So it was, um, it was raining green pythons there for a while. <laughs> no, my luck, I'd go up there and I wouldn't see one. <laughs> most, most people do. Like, I mean, Matt was saying the whole time leading up to this trip that they're the most common snake up there. He's never been up there, I don't believe, and, and hasn't seen them. Um, and most people that go there see them. They seem like yeah. pretty pretty reliable snakes. So uh, yeah, you just gotta gotta get up there. But I mean, they do have a they do have a very very small accessible part of their range. Um, of course, they're found in in that big 
portion of the rainforest but that road through iron range only touches a very small part of it so there must be a lot yeah. of green pythons up there because there's the amount that's along that single road is is pretty incredible yeah, yeah i can only imagine yeah i yeah i just couldn't imagine the feeling of actually seeing one <laughs> they're yeah. stunning individuals too the aussies oh, like they're just something amazing. different that white vertebral stripe that they get down yeah. the back that the majority of them had is just unreal. Yeah, and most of them had f- had awesome f- stripes on them. And to find them on the passion fruit vine, yeah, like it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Um, yeah, but well, yeah. I mean that's the interesting, the interesting thing you you observe when you get up to a few of these places and you see some of these species, what they're doing and what they're sitting on. And I mean the interesting thing with with the green pythons is we didn't see a single one that was sitting on a, a perch thicker than half an inch. Like they're all sitting on these really spindly. I mean, we even saw one that wasn't on a perch at all. It was perched, but over just a pile of clumped leaves almost. But it just <laughs> kind of climbed up there and, and hugged a couple of leaves together and was sitting on that. So, um, yeah, kind That's of. That's one um, thing I noticed from Christie's video was. Yeah. Even when the day when they were in the trees, they were just on like the thinnest of the branches. One, and there was one I think that wasn't even on the branch; it was just on like a bunch of leaves or yeah. something. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and you Amazing. see, um, you see a lot of captives sitting on these big, you know, two-inch thick pieces logs. Of, of PVC and logs. Yeah, um, okay. kind of makes you wonder why half of them have issues shitting and um, everything and, else. Yeah, all the um all the issues that seem to be so prevalent in green pythons could probably be solved fairly simply if if people just looked at what they're doing in the wild. I think that's one of the biggest issues when it comes to the captive green tree pythons is not is so much the people seeing them in the wild. Like <clears throat> obviously they're in pretty remote areas. Yeah. Um and you know there's obviously there's a the few green tree python books out there now, but there's wasn't really that much info out there on keeping them so no and i guess i mean the, the the hard part is that a lot of these husbandry guidelines and publications that have been written on on green pythons have been written by people that have kept them you know very similar to you know how we were just saying not to um yeah for, you know to get to give you a perfect example at the at the reptile park we had um we had some old enclosures. They were old plastic Neodicia enclosures that we um, that we imported from the states, probably like thirty years ago, early nineties. At some point, horrible, horrible things they were. And um, there was one one particular enclosure that was specifically uh, produced to house adult green pythons, and it's a two by two by two foot cube with a you know, a single perch running through the middle of it. And that's that was the the standard and in a lot of collections still is. So I think yeah. it's um yeah, it's a, a bit of a worry to be honest. But in saying that, I mean it's probably never gonna change. Um I think I think it's starting to change talking. a little bit now, I think. I've yeah. noticed the trend on on social media with yeah. um, you know, people not so much keeping in small enclosures, but getting back to larger enclosures and less animals and yeah i think that's that's really the way that that this hobby needs to be headed i mean definitely it's um 
it's impressive to have you know 50 snakes in a room and you know most most reptile people would walk in there and and marvel at, at all the different colors and you know all this huge number of snakes but i think it's starting to become far more impressive to have two snakes on that wall instead of a hundred. Um, and I hope that that kind of continues. I think everyone did it too. Like I was the same. Everyone did. Oh, like yeah. it, it, it's that when you're young, especially you're like, you, you want to, it's almost like Pokemon or cards. Yeah, you want to, you want to catch them all mentality. almost. Yeah. And I think um, obviously mutations had a, have a big role with that as well. But I mean, I still like a lot of the mutations and everything else, but yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's, it's probably a good shift. I think. But you also yeah. got to think about where it's kind of coming from. So for me, when I got into the hobby, you know, <clears throat> eight odd years ago or however long ago it is now, um, you know, you start trying to find videos on on snake keepers or whatever, and all you see or yeah. what comes up first in your searches are these big breeders. They've got racks, ball pythons everywhere, thousand snakes down this wall or whatever, and you go, oh, this is the norm. So then yeah. you naturally just standard. start trying. Yeah, you just try to start striving towards that, and then you kind of have like this – this snap and you go, this just isn't right to be keeping all these snakes in this sort of method. And, you know, I was the same. I was starting to see snakes get a little bit fat in tubs because they're not got enough room to exercise and all the rest of it. And even now, like I look at my pair of greens now and they're in a 120 by 60 by 60 centimetre enclosure and I'm going, this is too small. This needs to get bigger. I want to see them stretch out. I want to see them climb. You know, yeah. I want to see them really move. Yeah, that, was and the, it's, that was the thing with those those wild snakes is they're all moving a lot. Um, yeah. We found we found one kind of older, scarred-up animal on the second night, and it was sitting in ambush on the ground, which is another, you know. <laughs> another, it was sick. Yeah. Did you take it to the vet? Another captive <laughs> no-no that the wild ones seem to do a lot. Um, and the next night we found it in ambush um, in a bamboo thicket like probably 100 metres away. So at some wow. point, either that night or the next night or during the day, it's moved that that distance. And they're also climbing, you know, yeah. three, four, five meters every single day, going up, perching, climbing back down, sitting in ambush, climbing back up, and that's all they do all day, every night. And that that climbing up and down too is a lot different from slithering horizontally or, or climbing yeah. horizontally. Like that's going to be using a whole range of muscles to get them up and down there and something that i did really like about seeing a lot of those photos and the videos from that trip was seeing how fit those snakes were yeah. so i've turned yeah, around and looked at is incredible yeah like I, I i do need to build a bigger enclosure for my female in particular because i find that she's so sedentary and i don't feed her a lot but she just holds weight but i yeah. think she needs to be able to get that vertical climbing in her habit so then she can actually burn some of this weight off because she doesn't have that lateral line down her like all those wild snakes do. Yeah, and that's something, I mean, it's it's across all species as well. It's not just green pythons. I mean, some of the some of the brown snakes I see in the wild, they look like they're about to die. They're so thin and, and they have such l low body condition, but they're obviously doing well and it's obviously just from feeding on a diet of skinks and not much else. So mm. I think... Um, I think for the most part, the diets that captive reptiles get are incredibly different to what their wild counterparts are getting and they just don't know how to do, deal with the amount of nutrients and, and fat that they're getting in this single meal. It's probably the same number of calories they'd get in years in the wild. 
Yeah. Yeah, in, in one meal. They probably wouldn't even eat that in a year in calories. 100%. So, and um, I, know, I watched the second video that Christy put up the other day. That yeah. black-headed python. What a unit. That thing was a monster. And that was by far the biggest blackhead I've ever seen. Um, just late afternoon, crossing the road. I mean, you get blackheads at night, but you do get them quite frequently in that dusk period and also early yeah. in the morning as well. Um, and yeah, that thing was was just stretched out on the side of the road, pulled up for it, and we were just walking back to it in like disbelief. It was huge. We didn't have a um, we didn't have a tape measure or anything, but we got a rough length of I think it was nine feet. We kind of. <sighs> Mapped out because Matt laid down next yeah, to it. it. One and, and a half mats. Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a big snake. Are they pretty Not common up there? Or is that kind of like a as. something you don't see too often up that way? Oh, I think we lost you again. <laughs> there Sorry, you go, say you that again. Are they pretty common up there, or or is that kind of like a one you don't see too often? No, they're they're reasonably common. Um, on the Cape, not so much yep. in Iron Range itself, um, maybe in some of the drier country, but certainly not through that that rainforest where you get you get green pythons. You don't really get blackheads there. Uh, yep. But most of the Cape is just dry savanna country that's pretty pretty ideal for for blackheaded pythons. So yeah, they are they are common up there. That was the only one we saw, but most people that go up there see one at some point. Yeah, what um, <clears throat> what was your obviously your green tree python was your your main species you wanted to see up there. Yeah. What was probably your second? Um, the other two I really wanted to see were, and we got both of them, were the um, the giant tree geckos and oh, yeah. uh, coastal taipan as well. I'd never seen a um a coastal tie in my previous visits to to Cairns, so yep. yeah, we um. We managed to see two coastals on the drive out of Iron Range. Um, yep. Quite quite scary. They're um they're a full on snake. <laughs> I can only imagine. Captive captive ones can be can be bad, but um, you know, from what I've heard and from certainly what I witnessed with the two that we saw, they um that yeah, they're they're a very, very dangerous snake and we were very remote, so um, Matt yep. kind of kind of made the call i was getting my camera gear out and and was getting ready to to take photos of the bigger one we saw but it just would have been almost suicidal it was um yeah i mean i say the bigger of the two the second one we got was about four foot so still a horrible horrible size and the first one we saw was like two foot long so completely unmanageable so um yeah we just kind of got some got some video of those and um yeah that was kind of all we all we really dared to to do i'll have to try and find one a little bit closer to cans a little bit closer to to some medical <laughs> facilities just in case just in one. case uh, i think some people are just a little bit too brave sometimes with these sorts of things and they can get themselves into some real pickles yeah i mean taipans are amazing but getting photos nice photos of one posed it's um it's not worth dying for that's for sure yeah you guys didn't happen to you guys didn't happen to see any um i'm having a 
a brain fart moment here. What's your favorite gecko? Chameleon gecko. You guys didn't see any chameleon geckos on that uh, trip? Yeah, we saw um we saw one. We um we had a bit of time. They're not up in the Cape. They're they're kind of oh, back okay. down toward toward Cairns. Um, really not even in Cairns. Mostly out in the out in the tablelands. Um, and yeah, we saw one on one of our last nights. We'd gone out there chasing chasing a few mammals. Um, I'm not really well. I mean, I do like mammals, but they're certainly not something that I spend a lot of time looking for or targeting or anything like that. But yeah. Um, yeah, a Lumult's tree kangaroo is a pretty incredible animal. I did want to see yeah. one. Um, so we spent spent some time out out in the tablelands. And, um, yeah, one night we saw those um, plus a bunch of those North Queensland endemic possum species. And then, uh, yeah, we saw some, some northern leaf tails and quite a few frog species. And just walking back to the car, I eye-shined. Um, yeah, one chameleon gecko just down off the um, off the road a little bit, but I have seen them. I've seen them previously on previous trips to Cairns. Yeah, that's another thing I'd love to tick off. Was did it have a regen tail or did it have a, a um, no. uh, normal big big ugly regen? They um, oh. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a shame. I, I I photographed a really nice one with an original tail a yep. few years ago, so I wasn't too too fast. I didn't even even get a phone photo or anything i just kind of walked over to it Sorry. saw it turned around to walked away <laughs> yeah. i think that's, that's what triggered my question is because i'm kind of on your instagram at the same time while having a chat yeah. just really appreciating your your photo, your photography and stuff and yeah seeing that one on there really nicely posed on that log it's just such they're such a stunning and very unique gecko oh, yeah they are I love them they're really cool were the tree geckos hard to find or are they kind of um, they, they, um, they kind of, I think, almost prefer a different habitat to, to what the greens are in. Um, the one that I photographed, um, we found that, or Matt found that, out in a bit of drier country, um, where, yeah, the, the vegetation was a little, little different. But they're all through there. You can get them in the rainforest. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're, um, they're usually quite high in the trees. And um, yeah, they're a pretty full on, full on gecko. All that, that whole genus um, are a lot of fun. Not to be so quite love to bite, <laughs> and yeah, they, they don't um, let go. <laughs> horrible, horrible attitudes on them. Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember the first Linder I, I ever caught um, was up in the top end, and um, the only like it was running up a, up in a. They're so quick too. And just probably like by the time I got to it, it was eight or nine foot up the rock and I just kind of had to jump a bit. And the only way I could get it was to just kind of cop a bite and <laughs> go from there. So, yeah, it held on for a good a good few minutes. That's a good thing though. If you, if you can manage to get your hands on it, you've got it because it's not going to let you go yeah. even if you let it go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We've got those um, – we've got Rachidactylus at the, at the park – the um, the big New Caledonian giant geckos, which are very very similar, they're a giant. They're practically a giant Australis almost, um, and they yeah. have the same uh, lamellae under the under the tail tips. They're obviously very closely related to those Pseudothecodactylus. Um, and yeah, I've copped one bite from one, and they're uh, huge too. That was bad. <laughs> Lots of they're blood. massive. 
Yeah, they're blue yeah. tongue, pretty much blue tongue sized. That's a big mouth. It's so interesting the um their tail tips and yeah. seeing it. I like it. Seeing it in the flesh, it's 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 yeah, it's and watching them use their tails when they're when they're climbing. Because I used to have some some of the cave geckos. Yeah. And yeah, they just yeah, it's unreal. Like I I don't this is I don't think there's any other geckos in Australia that have that at all. No, no. there isn't, is there? No, they're the only ones. Yeah. But yeah, they're I think because obviously I'm a big gecko nut, so I'd love to um, so tick a lot of the, <laughs> lot of the geckos off. I think, and when I go herping, so that's probably a lot of yeah, my yeah. obviously green tree pythons and geckos. So. Geckos are a, are a wonderful thing when you're out in the field because, of course, yeah, I'm I'm a big snake snake guy, and a lot of what I what I want to see is either a specific python or or an elapid or whatever, but. Um, Anywhere you go, there's always a, a gecko to keep you busy and they really don't care as far as conditions go, um, especially stroughs. Wherever you go, there's always a strough. You know, it can be six, seven degrees, you know, bottom of South Australia somewhere. And, um, yeah, there'll be a there'll be a strough sitting out, no doubt. Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty reliable. Oh, not for me. I struck out really hard with the <laughs> and I, I spent a lot of time looking in a lot of shrubs looking for those guys. And yeah, I, uh, just just silly iris around Alice. Yeah, yeah, not one. Yeah, yeah but I was talking to uh, Michael Payne, and he's going, "Yeah, you'll be guaranteed to see three a night or or whatever." And no, nah. once um once you can work out eye shining, that will just change everything. Like I remember trying to look for geckos before I knew how to eye shine and you would just kind of wander around and look in shrubs and and hope that you get one crossing the road maybe. But, yeah, eye shining kind of changes all that. You just pick your habitat, pick your species, and, yeah, generally you can walk around and, you know, the, the, the lizard might be in this really weird spot 50 metres away and you would have never seen it otherwise, um, but you can pick up on that eye shine and just go straight to it so really that's the main method that that we're using when when we're targeting a gecko um, you can you know you can fluke a nefarious or lots of stroughs will just cross the road and, and sit on the road even tracks like when i was over in wa we were look, walking a lot of those coastal tracks um, looking for bardic in that sandy heath country and you get a lot of spinageras just sitting out on the track but yeah, if you can eye shine, it, it makes such a difference to finding some of these, especially some of the more obscure geckos that you're unlikely to find otherwise. I'd like to think that I've got reasonable skill eye shining. I definitely do need some practice on it, but yes. like locally I'm pretty good at, at spotting things eye shining, like frogs and stuff like that as well. But, mm. yeah, I don't know. I like it. It is what it is. You know, I'm not going to put any excuses up to us why I didn't find them or whatever, but it was very frustrating after spending night after night out there looking for these things and that's nah, all the more reason to go back in my book. Yeah, exactly. Always got to have, have a reason to go back to a spot. Oh, I've got about 50 reasons to go back to that spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I saw a bad part of the country, hey? No, no. Well, I love, I mean, just the habitat as well. Like, it's just so awesome. It's so nice being out in somewhere like that. And you just really see so much beauty in Australia when you're out of the concrete jungle, you know. Like, it's just so nice to get out into the bush and see this sort of habitat. But 
I saw so many species that I was after, unfortunately dead or like not long dead as well. You know, like a oh. there's a beautiful Boma python that was only hit a couple of hours before I saw it. There's, you know, like a black-headed monitor that was perfect except for his head. Um, the amount of thorny devils that I saw that were no, no longer with us, like, yeah, it was just absolute carnage. The sand monitors, the sand monitors what got me. I must have seen 30 or 40 of those things just gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah people just... You know, must just fly along those roads with no consideration for any of the wildlife that may be sitting on it. Like, yeah. I mean, even a thorny, like a, a moloch is a small, small lizard. Some of them are really tiny, but I mean, the you way they walk, the one. way they, yeah, the way they move, they are easy to see. Like, it's not, um, it's not hard. So, I mean, people are obviously just staring, staring ahead, driving aimlessly and just, knocking them as they go through but like yeah the goldie eye the amount of the amount of large monitors you see that get hit is insane and yeah. unfortunately i think probably a lot of people are, are swerving to hit some of these things yeah, yeah. i think so when i was yeah. out i've seen multiple dead roadkill parentes now like oh. probably five or six pretty wow. unfortunate that's a that's always a killer when you see a big you know iconic charismatic lizard like that yeah what do they like to work with parentes yeah yeah they're cool I, I like them as far as australian varanids go they're probably up there for me i like their head structure and and just the way they way they cruise around they're very active very alert um, i like them much more than a than a lacy um yeah at the moment at the park we've just got an adult female um who we really need to get a get a boy for or get her sent somewhere that there's a male because she's the last couple of years been dropping uh just infertile clutches but um yeah the uh yeah the other two that we've got are, are quite young they're just probably around that six month mark now um but yeah great great lizards i've seen them in the wild uh, a few times now as well uh, the first actually the first time i went to uluru uh, myself and and a mate we got one just a small one, probably three foot, and it was basking on the side of Uluru. <laughs> oh, wow. That was, pretty, That's like, was a pretty cool sight. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think you can get any more Australian than that. Nah. And the best, well, you know, it was weird. Um, we were kind of just in the, the little car park there enjoying the sunset and cooking up a bit of dinner, waiting to, um, waiting to head out and herp for the night. And there was this German couple down the down the track a little bit and they were screaming out and they were screaming black lizard black lizard and we were like oh is there a tristus over there like we just kind of wandered over expecting to see this big you know black male tristus sitting there because they are quite common there and yeah there's just this three foot parenti no black on it at all really (laughs) (laughs) maybe they were colorblind that's unreal we, we kind of met like a couple when we were there and we kind of just bumped into them a few times in between Alice and, and Uluru and stuff. And, uh, yeah, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, just this morning there was a, a four-foot parenti or whatever around the other side of this rock here. And <laughs> Danny and I were kind of like, oh, geez, we like went around to the other side of the rock in hope, hopes of seeing it, went to the spot that they, they said it was and just it was long it. gone or it was, it was hiding or something. But, yeah, didn't get to see it, unfortunately. But that would have been awesome to see a parenti on the side of, of Uluru. Yeah, Varanids are, you know, right up there with my favourite things to 
to see. Had a really cool, cool moment up in the Kimberley. Um, one morning we just did this walk down to a beautiful, beautiful little um, part of the creek. And there was a few waterfalls and, and whatnot, really picturesque, picturesque place. And, um, yeah, there was four male Mertons, big boys too, some of the biggest Mertons I've seen, all within very close proximity to one another, all just kind of taking turns to bask and then one would go in the water and go for a swim and come back up and then they'd all just take turns. It was just, we just sat there for probably 40 minutes to an hour watching these these four boys just loving life, basking, swimming. They're such a cool lizard. They're actually a yeah. really underrated monitor, I reckon. A hundred percent. You kind of get the best of best of a few worlds there too, because you do get that swimming behavior too. Which, if you put them in the right enclosure, like somebody like uh, like Tyson Doc Merton, like his enclosure for a home enclosure is fantastic for for a Merton's water monitor. Like that's yeah, we um we've got got a male at the park, and we used to house him um in an exhibit with a pig nose turtle, but uh and it looked cool um. And I guess you know that's that's geographically accurate. Both both top end aquatic species, but um, the piggy just wouldn't let him in the water. Um, so we kind of <laughs> had to bite him. He's got he got chunks off his tail now. Um, yeah, she'd rip into him. Um, so we've removed him now, and we popped him into another aquatic exhibit, um, just with some smaller, um, smaller Australian freshwater turtles some of the northern tropic species um and they're all they're all good he, he goes down and, and swims with them um we've just actually introduced a big a big northern snake neck in there so we'll see how that thing gets along with the uh the mertens but um <laughs> for now he's um he's swimming around which is good to see it's awesome that's one thing that i've been kind of contemplating doing with my my mangrove monitor loki is because i do have some turtles and i would like to keep them when i move into this new place but somehow i don't think having a you know a big turtle pond on my courtyard will be okay with strata um <laughs> so i have been kind of contemplating trying him out with those guys before we move but i'm i don't know i'm kind of in two minds about it because i'm worried that he might try to, to try to chew on him but your mertens went okay with them obviously yeah yeah it doesn't bother the turtles it's more more so the other way around to be honest um but, but so far so good since we moved him away from that piggy yeah maybe he's learned his lessons with turtles yeah. and he's not gonna not gonna try Scarves anything with them yeah did um what sort of size pond areas in that display as well like literage uh so the the pig nose tank that he was in um living with that turtle is fifteen thousand liter so it's a big pretty big big display yeah. um yeah, it's probably like it's not overly wide, but it's quite long. I'd say six meters long. Um, yeah. So you know, a good amount of water for that that piggy to swim to swim around. Um, and now the one we've moved it into is is smaller. Um, it's probably about I want to say six seven thousand liter. Yeah. So still a sizable display. Um, but yeah, not not quite what it was in with the pig nose, but it's it's obviously utilizing the water far more in this new setup than it was. Because he can. <laughs> yeah, he's allowed in now. They are fantastic animals to see swimming around. I've, I was pretty lucky to get a fleeting glimpse of one in Litchfield National Park, um, quickly take off into the water, which was pretty cool to see one there. But later on in my Darwin trip, 
we just kind of was like, we were just like, oh, we've just got to go go and find one. So we went up to Howard Springs and saw about half a dozen of them just cruising around the park there and and seeing them swim around in the the big ponds and everything. They're great. A lot of a lot of them um, sleep underwater too. I've seen Mertens multiple times whilst spotlighting for geckos or snakes or whatever, and you'll just kind of, you know, scan down to a little creek or whatever and you'll see a Mertens just sitting there, eyes closed. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, my my uh, mangrove monitor, he sleeps in water um, during the warmer months, not so yeah. much the cooler months. He kind of goes into his hollow essentially, but... Uh, yeah, it's quite cool going and finding him at night and he's just got a, got his head just above the water surface, just like a croc, you know, just enough so he's got his nostrils and his eyes out and yeah. he just kind of I, floats um, there. Yeah, it's surprising some of the things you see, um, you know, doing behaviours that you wouldn't typically associate with the species as well. What we were just talking about, that sitting under the water, you know, just with the head right on the surface. Uh, a mate of mine actually found a Gleba palmer doing that exact thing um, which you know most people wouldn't really associate with being a, an overly aquatic monitor, um, no. but yeah, just chilling, sitting in the water like that. Um, so it's quite quite interesting the observations you can make. Um, you know, you can learn a lot from from wild reptiles and what they do. Definitely. While we're on the topic of monitors, I ha- I do have to mention or ask, how do you guys go about finding that canopy monitor when you guys were up north? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I so, um, <laughs> I that's a bit, of, a bit <laughs> of a sore point for me because, um, I mean, we only really had one suitable day to look for those. Um, obviously, with, with varanids, they like sun, they like basking, um, and that's the main way that you'll you'll see them either basking on a road or in a tree or, you know, out on a rock rock escarpment. And so we were walking along the road on that first day when we did have suitable sun, just scanning the trees slowly, looking for them. Um, and myself, Matt and Christy had all been out together and we we're all walking along kind of, you know, quite close to one another. And then we kind of decided to split up. Christy went back to camp. I went for a bit longer of a walk. Then I went back to camp. And Matt was actually on his own when he when he spotted that thing, and oh, um, so he uh, he got some got some quick photos, and then a few four wheel drives drove past. It was right on the edge of the road, and um, the lizard took off immediately. Bit of a bit of a bummer for Matt, but he saw it and got a cracking photo of it, and just got walked, a good one. Walked back into camp, shoved his camera in my face, and said, "Here you go." <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that'd be cutting oh, for you. That is man. for Matt. That would have been excellent. I was, li- I was literally with him ten minutes before that, but always the way. Yeah, he got a cracker shot of that. Yeah, he's. <laughs> I mean, he he deserves it. He's been up there quite a few times, and he's seen one before um, on a previous trip, but just a really brief glimpse of it. Um, so at least, I mean, if if any of us was to get, get a good view of a Keith Horn. I kind of wanted it to be to be him. Um, he's, he's put in the effort for them. Yeah, definitely. What's your one species that you haven't seen, your unicorn, so to speak? Mm, yes. Everyone's got one. Oh, yeah, everyone has one. It's always the way. There's always <laughs> something that no matter how hard you try, you just cannot, cannot catch a break with them. Um, for me, it's... Uh, Woma pythons, I've spent, I mean, Womas have a huge range. They're found in, in 
five states. So they're not yeah. like a like a roughie or a green python where they have this this reasonably small restricted range. They're found across a huge area. Um, so I kind of thought at some point, you would have I'd, one um, now. yeah, I'd just happen across one. I've done so many trips. I think almost every trip I've done, aside from this recent Cape trip, I've I've gone through their range. Um, and just never come across one. And for the last probably two years, two, three years at least, I've like actively been targeting them fairly, you know, fairly heavily done specific trips just to areas that I think look good or where people have seen them before. It's just so frustrating. Um, yeah, like to give you a perfect example, uh, a, a bloke that used to work um, at the park with me, he uh, he moved to the Sunshine Coast and started working at Australia Zoo. And he had never, he'd hardly herped before, to be honest. Um, and this was his is first. Is that Josh? No, this is, um his name's nah. Sam, Sam Richardson. Ah, okay. And um, yeah, just a, just a young, keen, keen herp, herp keeper. Um, he's, he's a good fella. And he had planned kind of this first big herp trip that he was going to go on. Um, and he was going to go all the way out to Alice and back. And so he leaves the Sunshine Coast, drives out into the Brigalow, first night ever in Woma Python distribution, and just gets one immediately. <laughs> and, <laughs> I bet he messaged you straight oh, away. <laughs> yeah, he, he took great, great pleasure in sending me a photo of that thing sitting there on the road. And it was a stunning snake too. Um, really, really good looking Woma. Same deal. Last year, we were out in the Tanami, spent almost a week up there cruising for Womas, came back down, tried at Uluru on the way home, spent a few nights there. A couple of nights after we flew home, uh, a bloke that I now work with, also named Sam, sends me a photo, Woma Python at Uluru. Um, so <laughs> there's been a few of those now where I've just kind of missed them by a few a few days so really frustrating but um i'll get one eventually and it will be a very very good moment that'll be me <laughs> with green tree pythons i reckon <laughs> uh, well, hopefully not they're a pretty yeah they're a pretty easy one as far I've as i've got a local unicorn pythons go oh what's that heath monitor oh yeah another absolutely monitor. well that's they're completely underrated well they no matter what I do, I've seen plenty, unfortunately, you know, dead on the road. Yeah. My grandmother sent me a video of one walking through her backyard going, hey, what's this little lizard, sweetheart? And I'm like, <laughs> you're killing me. And it was like a juvenile too, still with like all the orange markings and stuff on its head. And she's only about yeah, 10, 20 minutes away from me. Um, yeah, one of the girls from work the other day, she's like, oh, I saw this monitor while I was walking the dog. Heathy. Like they, everyone finds them but me, I swear. <laughs> They can be they can be tough in in Sydney. Um, they're very very common. I've never been to Kangaroo Island, but they're very common down there. Um, I've seen them. We saw a huge, probably the biggest one I've ever seen over in um, over in WA, right down south at Margaret River, and it was freezing and misty rain, and this thing was out basking. Um, don't know what was going through its head, but they are a really you know, a, a cold adapted varanid. Um, we've got them at work in an outdoor pit. We've got a young pair out there together. 
And, um, yeah, some of the conditions you see them sitting out in, you just wonder what is going through their brain. But, yeah, they're, they're a really cool lizard. I really like them. Stunning when they're young. Yeah, beautiful. Really I still nice. think they're nice when they're old too. Like, oh, sure, they're not yeah. they're not flashy like a Pilbara rock monitor or anything like that, but they're completely no. beautiful in their own right. Yeah, I think yeah. all the monitors are really. Oh yeah. Yeah. The more and more we talk about monitors, it's the more and more I go, yeah, I need to I need to just focus on monitors. <laughs> <laughs> need to rename this podcast. I think <laughs> Australian Veronin podcast. Yeah. Oh, um, amazing. One thing I want to chat about is camera gear. Yeah. What sort of like when what sort of camera gear are you packing when you go on a herb trip? Are you relatively light or you just have um, you got kind of your go to setup now? I've got a I've got a fair bit of gear now. It's like anything. Um, you know, when you start out you just have a body and maybe a single lens and you know, you don't even have flashes or anything at that stage. I remember some of the yep. first the first herb photos I took just absolutely horrific just you know my kit lens onboard flash no diffusion just straight you know nothing nothing special at all but as you go along you kind of pick up little tips and tricks along the way and you kind of work out what gear is going to work best for your situation and um yeah along the way somewhere i picked up a couple of flashes um which really is i mean most of what what you're photographing is at night a lot of these snakes pretty well any gecko even a lot of skinks um they're at night or they're in very dimly lit conditions so having flash um, really does make the world a difference and um yeah most people that are taking photos of reptiles are using either one or two um, and usually pretty heavily diffused as well um, so diffusion and, and flash and flash position, it was something I played around with a lot, uh, mostly when, you know, in that, in that first few years when I was getting into it, my setup really hasn't changed all that much, I want to say, since about 2015. So kind of been yeah. rocking with the same, the same setup. Um, so essentially what I do, I use a Canon 60D, um, so yep. kind, of a, kind of an older, older body now. Um, I got that in 2013, but with these, you know, these higher end Canon and Nikon bodies, if you look after them, they go for a long time. Oh, definitely. Um, and you know, I kind of get made fun of, fun of when I go on, on a few of these trips, um, about how pedantic I am with cleaning camera gear. I'll almost clean my gear after every, um, every animal I photograph, to be honest, if I can, um, just to, but that's you know, what I makes just, them last. I just too. hate I just hate gear being covered in red sand or mud or you know, you put this gear through a lot, taking it out into the field and you know, sometimes you're shooting in the rain and just definitely these, these conditions that aren't conducive at all for, for photography really. Um yeah. that is that is hurt photography in a nutshell. Um so I try to keep my gear clean and and yeah, that body's lasted lasted all this time and still going strong. And then on that, um, I'll use a 60mm macro lens. I have played around with other other macros. I started out with a 90mm, uh, then I went to 100mm. Um, but I just found over time that I really didn't like those longer macros. They're fine yeah. for something like a, a small frog or a small skink or a gecko. 
Um, but when you get into photographing, you know, a five-foot brown snake or a scrub python or something, they're just useless. You are so far away from the animal that it's just incredibly hard, one, to kind of control the animal, two, to light it properly. Um, so I just found that shorter shorter length macro really worked for me and I just like the way it the way it works. It's a short lens, it's light. Um, yeah. I'm not, you know, trying to, because most of the time when you're photographing a reptile, you're holding your camera with one hand. Um, so to have it there in your hand with this big, long, long lens on it just makes it all the, all the harder. Um, so yeah, I use a short 60 mil macro and then, um, I'll use a flash from either side of the animal. So I'll use the onboard flash turned right down. Um, I don't really like that to contribute too much to the lighting. Basically, the onboard onboard flush's sole purpose is to trigger the um, the external speed lights, and so that's what it does. It'll trigger those two speed lights, which I'll typically have set up either side of the animal. And um, yeah, I've just found that doing that with some nice diffusion, um, I use uh, soft boxes that are probably, I guess, nine ten inches across, so not huge. Um, but just enough to kind of take the edge off that light. Any flash that's um, that's undiffused is typically pretty harsh, um, especially on some of those those high powered speed lights. If you're just firing yeah. straight at an animal, um, you're going to get some pretty horrendous shadows and all kinds of funky things happening in your photos. So, yeah, diffuse the light a bit. And um, what I used to do when I first started out was I'd have the flashes mounted either side on a just a Manfrotto bracket. That was pretty much like the go-to herp setup. I think everyone, everyone was ones, using yeah. it. Yeah, that's what I started with. You just have your, your flashes set up. Um, but the, the disadvantage to that setup is you can only use very tiny softboxes because they're so close to your, your camera. If you were to use anything too big, it would be literally in front of your lens. Um, and also, you know, as, as I mentioned, some of those bigger species, you are quite a way away from the animal. Um, yeah. And therefore, your flashes would also be, you know, they'd be the same distance as your camera was. So what I do now is I'll set up the flashes either side of the animal, you know, just kind of stationary. And I'll, um, you know, that way I don't have to worry about the flashes at all. They just sit on the ground or they sit on a log or whatever, and I can just work you know with the camera um most of the time in that setup i can use two hands on the camera um i can kind of take my time and i'm not having to worry about a million things at once i'm literally just worried about the animal and the camera and the flashes just just sit there Um, the only tricky part with that is if the animal's kind of in a tree or off the ground somewhat because it's hard to then find something suitable to sit the flashes on Whereas with a bracket, you might have just been able to to you know, walk straight up to it and shoot something that's five, six foot off the ground. You can't do that with this setup. But really, most of what I'm photographing is either sitting on the ground or very low to the ground. So it um it works well. It's been yeah, a long winded nice. long winded response, but that's no, that's perfect. It. It's good as detailed. Yeah. Are you taking a telephoto as well, or are you just taking your macro? Um. So I don't own a telephoto, but fortunately I have a brother who is a wedding photographer. So I have access oh, to beautiful. some pretty um, <laughs> some pretty good lenses and I actually managed to uh, 
nick his uh, uh, 70 to 200 f2.8 telephoto for the um for the iron range trip so yeah yeah historically Perfect. i haven't taken too many telephoto type shots if you look yep. on my instagram or Flickr or whatever most of what you're going to see is just standard field guide type photos the animals usually pretty tight in the frame um, i yep. don't typically muck around too much with wide angles and that kind of thing um I do like that style of photography where you can see habitat yeah, and you I can do. see the animal. Um, I really have to be honest, haven't put enough time into it to where I'm good at taking that style of shot. And it is, you know, it can be time consuming. Um, Especially with the flashes. Yeah, exactly. And and it's just another, another thing that um, is in the frame that you have to worry about. And now not only are you worried about, lighting the animal well but you've also got to allow for the time of day and whether your background is lit appropriately so for me it's just fast and and easy to um to take photos of the animal um in a fairly small area i can control the light very well i said fast there which um you know some people listening to this might might laugh at i can i can take my time taking a photo I am very fussy <laughs> with, with uh, poses and lighting and that kind of thing. Um, but, I mean, I'm kind of getting less and less like that as I get older. I'm kind of just more so trying to get trying to get a shot of the animal and if it's decent, that'll do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I do like to have these things to look back on as a memory exactly. for the trip. I was just talking to, to Matt yesterday actually just saying how good the you know, it was to have the video of this trip because this is the first trip I've been on where I've actually had some video footage taken as well. Usually it's just photos. So maybe I'll have to get my ass into gear and start taking some, some footage as well as, as well as photos in, um, that's in future trips. That, that's what I've started doing now. Cause I've got so many, so many mates that whenever we're out or whatever, they, they take all the photos and, and do all that sort of gear and, I just pull the phone out now or, or whatever and just start filming some of the stuff. And I'm like, look, you can actually see the thing moving around on, on film now. You know, it's not just a still image. So they get a kick out of that. And, you know, yeah. that's why I do all my, my little videos and stuff when I'm away herping and that. Even if I take them offline on on my YouTube channel, I'll still keep, still keep them private for me to look back on, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's always good to to be able to look back. And I think in video as well, you often capture um, – a lot more of the moment and the excitement that's in that's involved. Um, you know, yeah. I have lots of lots of videos on my phone of of you know finding things and you know photographing things and searching for things that I you know I'll, I'll probably never post them. But it is good to look back on that that because it does kind of capture the moment a little bit better or in a little bit more of a way than a photo um, can. Yeah. That's good fun. All this herping talks just making me need to oh, start here. planning this trip, Jason. I'm <laughs> chomping at the bit now. I know. I've got These all the camera gear. I just need to sort out my flashes. <laughs> I've got the flash. I just need to sort some diffusers. Yeah, it's all um, it's all just a learning experience, and I mean, everyone's got to start somewhere. It's um, it's always That's fun right. to you look back to on some of your first photos and and just have a look at how absolute dog shit they were compared to what, you, um, what you're taking now but yep, i mean definitely. really i mean photography for me is just a 
means to record and catalog things that I've seen. I don't really, um, I wouldn't say photography is my passion or anything like that. It's, it's just a means for me to record these animals. The animals are my, are my passion and I, I really, yep. you know, get the kick out of seeing them. Photography is just secondary to that. And I think that's, that's really the case for most, most herpers. A little bit of a question that does relate to this. When you do find an animal and, you know, you set up your camera gear and you take your photo and that, what sort of time, like, I'm trying to think about how to word this. So, something I noticed amongst my herping friends when they're taking photos of animals, they spend so much time focused on getting the right photo for the animal that I find that they almost don't sit there and enjoy the animal being there. Yeah. Does that make sense? Where, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's something that can very easily happen. You're so so overwhelmed and so focused on on getting that shot that you have in your head that you forget to enjoy the animal that you've just spent all this time and money looking for. Um, so I try to always, you know, spend a bit of time first before I before I photograph anything, just enjoying the animal, just looking at it, looking at what it does. Um, and then if I can get a, a half-decent photo of it at some point during the um, – during the interaction, then excellent. But there's also a lot of things that I've seen that I don't have photos of either because, you know, I just couldn't be bothered. It was three o'clock in the morning and I didn't want to get the camera gear out or, you know, for whatever reason. But, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's just one of those things that you have to try and, um, try and remember is that it's about the animal and that experience that you're having and not about the, um, the photo and the, you know, the number of likes that you're hoping to get on that yeah. on that photo when you can get home and post it. It's not really, really what it's about. Yeah. I have this running joke with my mate, so I'm like the flash holder now. <laughs> so, <laughs> because well, I never crack my push. camera. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never get my camera out. I just don't bother anymore, really. I let them do it. I can just watch their photos or save their photos on my phone or whatever like yeah, that. I hate- I'll keep that. I hate photographing things when there's other people around. I always just feel like such an inconvenience. So generally <laughs> I'll try and um I mean I've got it down to a to kind of an art now that I can do it on my own. I don't need help photographing things. So I'll generally try and walk away from the group or, you know, try and find somewhere tucked away where I can photograph this thing without affecting everyone else. Um, because it is annoying, especially when you um you know, when you're taking a while and I've done quite a few trips where I'm the only photographer on the trip. And oh, so tough. everyone else has got their, their camera photos and they're, they're ready to rock and roll and keep, keep going. And you're there with this, you know, Delma trying to get, trying to get a shot of it posed <laughs> on top of some spin effects. And <laughs> it's, um, it can be, uh, yeah, it can be a major inconvenience. So a good a good piece of advice is to try and go away with people that are you know like-minded of course like-minded that also are photographers because then everyone's kind of in the same boat the frustration yeah. is mutual yeah yeah i can definitely understand why they take their time to get the perfect photos and everything and they do do cracking jobs at them too i have to give them kudos there um i just don't have the patience for it personally but i'm more than happy to stand there with the flash and i just watch the animal and yeah enjoy that and yeah keeps me happy that's for sure yeah i guess if there was you know no one taking the time and putting in the effort to get good photos of these things you know hurt books would be a pretty sad 
sad thing to read. Um, yeah, it's always it's always nice to flick through a book and see see nice yes. photos of what they're you know what they're describing. Um, you know, you look at any of the field guides, and you know these days especially, there's just some incredible hurt photographers out there, both in this country and and overseas. And um, you know, to compare a field guide from 1970 to to now, it's just um, it's just incredible where um, where photography and and especially herb photography is, has come to. Yeah, definitely. That's that's the other good thing about opening up some of the books is seeing some of the pictures, I think. so. I do like to... Um, yeah, I love that. I do like to flick through some of the older books. And, I mean, some of those, some of the Australian herpetologists, you know, Store and, you know, Brad Marion and Steve Wilson, some of the photos those guys were taking on film when you had no idea oh. what what your photos were turning out like and you know, how the animal looked. They're pretty incredible. I, I yep. really, you know, really appreciate a nice herp photo that was taken in, you know, the the late 70s or 80s. It's pretty um it's pretty incredible. It's almost it's almost too easy these days. <laughs> oh definitely. It definitely is. Yeah. One thing <clears throat> before we go I'd like to touch on is you do a lot of the mock rock work at work as well, don't you? Yeah, I do. I do I do a bit of it. It's um, yeah, it's kind of one of those things. Really, in the last, I guess, year or two, that I've just become obsessed with, as most as most people do. Herp, you know, herps are a weird thing. You start out just liking reptiles, and then the next second, you're buying camera gear, and then you're building enclosures, and then you're building backgrounds for your enclosures. So. It's just and you're this, wiring lights off. Oh yeah, <laughs> everything. Do some plumbing the other day. You're um, you're kind of a jack of all trades, especially when you're working in a, in a small private, you know, wildlife park. Um, yeah, you kind of have those those opportunities to get amongst it and have a go at things, um, that some of the bigger places might get get contractors in for. So, yeah, it is good. Um, recently, I've kind of been playing around with, not so much your typical um background like you might do in a in an exoterra where you're using your foam and your grout or um you know i know a lot of people these days are using the the tile pointing which i think you you use a lot of luke um i've kind of been doing a bit of research and and looking into uh, almost like zoo quality rock work um to where it's cement and sand mixes mortar mixes um essentially um, on wire framework and things like that. Um, just, you know, looking at looking at ways to make things a little more durable and a little more suited to some of these larger species. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what I've been playing around with the last the last little while, just building some some boulders and some backgrounds and whatnot um, out of out of sand and cement mixes. And it seems to be going going well. Um, the major disadvantage to the to that technique is that the enclosure ends up incredibly heavy um, because you're using, you know, cement um, yep. and sand. So it dries, you know, hard as hard as concrete. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's one disadvantage. But I guess the main advantage that I've found is it's really easy to carve and you can get, get quite detailed and quite artistic with it. Um, to the point where you're not just, you know, sculpting the the shape out of 
foam and then you're painting foam essentially in, in whatever product, you're doing a very basic framework and then you're applying your mortar mix and then you're carving the rock from that, I guess. Um, so that's yep. kind of what I've been what I've been playing around with a fair bit. Um, what I personally like best and what I've found works quite well is a, um, a two-to-one sand cement mix or even a three-to-one. Um, and the cement I use is just normal, you know, GP cement. Um, and then I'll use like a white bricky sand. You can use whatever, whatever color um, sand, but the type of sand does matter. You want it to be a fairly sharp sand. Um, and yeah, it, um, yeah, it's good fun to, to play around with. I've made some fairly, uh, durable rocks out of that. I've just recently completed a fairly large piece that's gone into our, uh, female Komodo dragons exhibit. Um, and obviously, you know, a Komodo is going to destroy whatever you, um, whatever you place in their exhibit, essentially they, you know, they'll destroy plants. They will destroy rock work if it's not up to not up to scratch so um yeah that was a good a good project to kind of um test out the durability of this stuff and it seems to be going going well so far yeah right um because how much how much do they weigh those commodos they'd be what 40 30 40 kilos yeah so we've got a pair uh the male he's a bit over 40 kilos we haven't weighed him in a while um he's probably i would say between 43 and 45 kilos now um, yep. He's just about to turn 10 years old in a couple of weeks. And then the girl, uh, she's in her mid-20s. She fluctuates depending on our reproductive cycles. Um, she fluctuates between 27 and 23 um, typically. So, they're, yeah, they're, they're heavy lizards um, with yeah. some serious claws on them. So, yeah, they will, um, they will do some damage. So, yeah. It's no wonder you have to make rock work that's going to be really strong to stand up to creatures like those. Yeah, yeah that um, that that piece that I did it did did still have um, a, like foam base to it, so I just had a bunch of big thick pieces of of either that insulation board or just big thick pieces of styrofoam. Um, but then what I did was I basically coated those in layer upon layer of chicken wire and that's what your mix is applied to and that's what really gives it its its strength um it's like um i think matt talked about this in his podcast as well um it's pretty well exactly the same as putting a rebar um you know sheet of rebar down in your um in your concrete slab your yep. concrete forms around that and that's what gives it the strength and that's essentially what what is happening here as well um, and then more recently what i've what i've started doing is actually building the framework out of rebar and then attaching all your chicken wire um, to that and so then you can apply your mix but the inside of the rock is actually hollow so there's nothing inside it it's just a rebar shell that's basically sandwiched in a mortar mix yeah, that's crazy. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never had to go down that route, of course, because I'm only making backgrounds for little geckos and a few snakes <laughs> and little yeah, things. Well, so. I, got a, um, I got a call on the radio the other day to say that the that part of the um, yellow-footed rock wallaby exhibit had started falling apart a bit, some of the rock work in that. So that might be the um, the next mock rock job when I can get a bit of time. But um 
yeah, mammals kind of get pushed pushed to the the side while ever there's reptile jobs going on. <laughs> <laughs> See, I wouldn't have even thought that that rock wallaby exhibit was actually fake rock. I would have just assumed that you guys had gotten a whole bunch of boulders in there and stacked them up nicely. And yeah, the um the, the back of the exhibit, kind of around the perimeter, is all all mock rock underneath the the fence, the perimeter fence. Um, but the big rock stack in the middle is actually boulders. Um, so where the ro- wallabies live is is natural boulders, but um, there are a few few artificial elements in the exhibit. Oh, wow. And the hard part is now, um, you know, the, the original um, husband and wife that did most of the, the rock work around the reptile park, um, they're now quite quite old and um you know they they still do it we've had them out in the last couple of years but it's very very hard on your body um it's not not Mm. easy work by any means um so yeah you kind of need to be teaching the the young fellas how to do it or it's just going to disappear and it is a trade that um you know a lot of people are fairly secretive about um a lot of these mock rock crews they like to keep their mixes and their techniques and all of these things are a bit of a secret so i guess i've just kind of got around all that by doing a lot of research and and just talking to as many people as i can and to be honest most of the people that i've talked to are like swimming pool guys that do you know artificial rock waterfalls and and slide troughs and things like that um yeah there's you know there's people out there that are pretty willing to to tell you what they do and teach you a bit, but um, yeah, you just need to find those people. Yeah, that's why I'm I'm always really happy when you know guys like yourself and Matt and Cam and Shane and stuff like that want to give out techniques on how to build a few backgrounds and you know different styles and stuff like that. Like I think it's good when people can actually share around a little bit of information, so then other people can have a bit of fun giving it a go themselves. Yeah, well, I'm um I'm actually hoping my two rough scale pythons are um are getting to that size now where they're probably a little big for the the enclosure that they're in and the enclosure they're in currently just has a um a grout uh, background a few layers of grout um but it's you know a bit over a year old now and with some scrubbing of urates and whatnot off the background it's kind of looking a bit shabby and the snake's getting a bit big anyway so um probably later this year hopefully i'll be doing a big big new enclosure for them with a big um yeah artificial rock background and i'll probably do it in the in the technique that i just described um it's going to be heavy as anything but hopefully if it's <laughs> if i do it in in a place where i don't intend on moving it anywhere um it shouldn't be an issue and like you can always you can always crack the rock with a you know enough force and a hammer and break these things down and and lift it if you you know lift it away if you needed to but really this this technique is more so for exhibits that you aren't intending on moving for the next decade that that kind of thing <laughs> yeah no that'll be good I, i'm looking forward to seeing some photos of that when that comes to fruition yeah, well, that'd be I awesome and, um, i might even try and film it because i do you know i i love watching those enclosure build videos yes yeah, so i've never personally personally made a video of me doing anything like that but i learn a lot from those those things so i think it's important for as many people to be putting that kind of content out there as possible the more that's out there the more people are going to learn 100 percent. 
like even just seeing um, uh, Cooper's video, he just put one out on his pygmy python enclosure the other yeah, day. Yeah, that rock work was fantastic. And, I, you know, I, I messaged him straight after I watched it and I'm like, man, you've just given me so many ideas for one that I wanted to do for my Oedura fimbria. I'm like, you know, just the way that he was stacking the foam horizontally and kind yeah. of using that as a lot of the layering technique. I was like, yep. It was like within an hour or two, I went out and started doing something so similar to what he did. Yeah. I was like, I've got all this spare foam. I'm going to try it myself. I liked the way he... Um... I mean, obviously, I know I know Cooper quite well through the the reptile park. He's a good fella. Um, I liked the way he um, he actually did the pieces individually and then put them in the enclosure. I'm sure it was very time consuming, but when yeah. I it was actually a very similar kind of style enclosure to what I did for my roughies, um, but I just got all the foam in there and then painted it with grout all at the end. And it would have been so much easier to get into a few of the crevices and cracks if I had have just done it in stages as opposed to just doing applying all the grout right at the end. Um, I think that was a pretty pretty smart idea on his part. Yeah. yeah I, have to, I have to agree with you there. I didn't do that. That was the one thing that I was like, <laughs> no, I'm not that patient. <laughs> I'm going to put it all yeah. in one and hit. Um, but, yeah, I can definitely see the benefits in doing that. It makes 100%. Um, good reasoning to me, that's for sure. Yeah, that, was, that was a killer enclosure. I reckon that was some of the best, like you know, DIY mo- um, mock rock that I'd seen in a little terrarium in a long time. That yes, was... yeah, I liked it. It's um, it's one of those things. I'm actually about to start a couple of um of frog enclosures at the park. Um, do backgrounds for four of those, and they're big big tanks too. Um, but they're all just just solid glass. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to kind of do these backgrounds because typically if I were doing a background um, with the, the mortar, um, I would screw all the framework into the just the melamine or, or form ply or whatever the enclosure is. So, and of course, you can't do that with glass. So I'll have to, um, I might have to get creative with how to attach chicken wire and and some of this framework to a to a glass background but we'll see i just have to, have to, to use expanding foam to attach a few a few points of it and go from there yep i do want to something Sounds i do good. want to try with um with the sections of expanding foam that i'm going to use is that wire brush technique that i've seen troy goldberg use oh it's it messy it looks messy, very, very messy. But, um, Speaking from experience, it's messy. Oh, you've done it. <laughs> oh, yeah, plenty. Um, yeah, plenty. It is completely gnarly. Um, uh, it, it works. It works. And, you know, for a little $5 wire wheel or whatever that you attach to your, your drill, it's fantastic. But you'll be finding foam for the next uh, few months <laughs> afterwards. Does it work if you use like a shop vac attached to the end of the drill? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, if you had a shop vac, then that would be <clears> ideal, but... I don't. I even just pulled out the vacuum while I was doing it just so I could suck up, you know, some of the mess with it. But yep. it just ends up everywhere. Like, yeah. At work, um, at work, I use like a wet dry vac. So it's mm-hmm. got yep. no, um, yeah, it's got no filter or it just goes it just into the big canister. Straight into a big canister. It's pretty ideal for for foam beads. But um, yeah, it's, it's messy. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that you got to be careful of with, uh, I'm yet to find an expanding foam that does this in in Australia. Actually, is 
that one that he uses in his videos, it seems to be dense the whole way through it. Yeah. Whereas all the expand, yeah, all the expanding foam that I've used here, you always end up with like all these little hollow pockets everywhere, which just you you end up digging into with that wire wheel, and then all of a sudden it bogs down and destroys half the half the foam. Yeah. Or you go too thick with it, and then you think you're right to start carving, and then you carve down, and you find a big wet patch. Yeah. And then it just comes back out. (laughs) Yeah. That's horrible stuff when it sticks to you as well. Oh, yeah. It takes ages to get off. I've still got, I've got a, um, I've got like a flano that I use when I'm, you know, doing whatever around the house that I don't really care about getting filthy. And it is just covered in expanding foam. Got these little (laughs) bits hanging off everywhere that I just can't get off. It's my, it's my background shirt, that one. The worst stuff's mastic, like fire-rated mastic to seal penetrations for fire-rating. The stuff like it's like it never dries. So you'll lean on it and you'll just bump like the skin that's dry and you just get mastic everywhere and it sticks to all your hairs and you just like every time you try and pull, pull it off, it just pulls all your hairs out. I was attaching a, um, a universal rock background to a turtle tank once and I thought I'd use that like aquarium or not even aquarium, like marine-grade silicon that they use on like yachts and that and that stuff is the stickiest thing i've ever encountered i remember i i just threw one of the tubes away after i was done with it and it like missed the bin and went all over the floor and i was just in all sorts <laughs> trying to get that that stuff off really bad uh, yeah there's no there's nothing worse than when you spill silicon or something on the floor and it's, you step in it that's the worst <laughs> No getting that off. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, we might wrap it up, eh? Yeah. What do you reckon? Two hours. Yeah. That went real quick. You've done well. I feel like I just sat back in this one and had a good listening sesh. This is awesome. It's given me heaps of inspo and, yeah, we've definitely got to organize a trip, Jason. Um, Yeah, definitely. Hopefully this COVID kind of settles down soon. Even in our own state, like I think this season I'm just going to focus on New South Wales and maybe a tiny bit in northern Victoria if if um the borders allow. But, I mean, there's so much. Western New South Wales is one of my favourite places to hurt. There's so many yeah. species out there just where you get that, that arid zone coming across. Um, I remember a couple of years ago um, did a trip out toward like Broken Hill and out past Cobar and that. And we found some awesome things, you know, ringed brown snakes and oh, wow. you get – I remember we had a night um, near Cobar and it was a hot, humid night in November, insects everywhere, and we saw over a hundred levis that in a single <laughs> in a single night. Far out. It was, it was insane. Um, and just like, you know, bulk sand swimmers and Leopholis in Ornata. They're an awesome skink. Leopholis are probably one of my favorite favorite groups of skink. Um, so yeah, they're one that I do need to get back out and get some better photos of. Plus a few of those, um, you know, the more obscure things. There's a few Tenotus out there and Larista and that that I need. So um, yeah, I think a Western a Western New South Wales trip will be on the cards for for this summer. Hopefully for me at least. Yeah. Well, we might have a backup trip if that's the case. If uh, if COVID doesn't let us get into Queensland, then maybe we could do that because I'm I'm keen to go back to arid country. Yeah, I mean, you really don't. 
have to travel too far. Like it's, you know, it's a good half day drive, but yeah, you can drive five, six hours and you're in red sand dunes and spin effects. It's pretty incredible. Don't have to drive all the way to, to the NT or, you know, the Pilbara or anything. We've got, you know, some pretty cool arid species right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to have to plan a trip, I think. (laughs) Keen. I keep saying that every podcast that we talk about herping. <laughs> I'll just have to talk to you a bit more off, off air and we'll get something teed up, mate. We um sounds good. On the this I'll just leave you with this some some inspiration for North Queensland. Because I know both of you guys like um like prickly forest skinks. Yep. Myself and um, <laughs> I like them, I just don't see them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you will if you go to uh you know a few spots up there. Myself and Matt on our on my last day up in Cairns on this recent trip, we went out into the tablelands and flipped so many logs looking for Ceranoschinchus frontalis, which is that snake-toothed skink that lives lives up in the wet tropics. And um, Matt hasn't seen one. That's kind of his bogey species. Um, lived in lived in Cairns a fair while now, and I think that's probably the only thing he has left to see. So we had an afternoon to kill and we we went out there and um you know tried our luck at those and uh didn't see any but we probably saw i want to say like between us 70 or 80 pricklies uh, <laughs> there was logs that we were flipping that had six or eight under them like they were just yeah wow kind of community wow. living under some of these pieces of um rotting dead timber their microhabitat is just horrible they um <laughs> they must just yeah, be constantly look... wet and soaked the, you'd, the, uh, you'd the think wood that, they, yeah the wood they live under just crumbles in your hand that how that's how wet it is um but yeah they're, they're living there and obviously getting enough you know food there's probably so many little microorganisms and that under those logs for them but um yeah, I've never seen one out active. I've only, of course, I don't live in Cairns, so I haven't seen nearly as many as as some people. But I've seen my fair share now, and every single one of them has been under some form of cover. That's crazy. Great skinks, though. Yeah, they're beautiful looking skinks. They're kind of um, you don't realize the color they've actually got on them until you get pretty close to them. Yeah, they're so, you see so them. unique. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, they're just they are an awesome animal, but yeah, it's like keeping a box full of ferns, <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of reptiles, really. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. I used to think my tristas were bad, but um, yeah, no, these the things are, these take the absolute cake. I've never not seen an animal as much as a prickly forest thing, <laughs> but uh, uh, oh, too good. All right, guys, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much, Jake, for coming yeah, on. This thanks is an for coming on, mate. Awesome chat. No worries. Um, Thank you for um for having me on. I'll never say no to a to a chance to talk about herps for a couple of hours. So definitely. Yeah. Well, that's good. We might have a re- repeat uh, it. repeat offender here by the sounds of it. Then, so we'll have to get you on after your next trip or after you've you know next build a background enclosure or something yeah, for like sure. that. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, guys, so we'd like to say thanks to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at uh, info at moreliapythonradio.com. 
As far as contacting us in our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. Good night, guys. Good night.